The book of Job is a prime example of why you don't just clip verses out of context. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Last week, we covered the first two chapters of Job, which is really the setup of the story and Job's suffering. The summary of that is Satan came to God among the heavenly host and basically said, look at what I've done. I've made everybody sin. Gotcha, God. And God said, have you, have you thought about Job? Have you considered Job? And Satan's reply was, well, of course Job's good because look at everything you've given him. You know, if, you were, if everybody was blessed like that, everybody would love you all the same. And so God allows Satan to test Job. And the first test is he takes away everything from Job. Job is a wealthy man with a lot of land, a lot of livestock, and a lot of kids. And he takes all of those things away. Ten children. Um, lots of livestock, his land is beaten up and destroyed. And then Job was still fine. He didn't, he didn't curse God. And uh, spoiler alert, throughout the whole book, Job does not curse God. Uh, but Satan still thinks he can get him. God allows him to test him further, but he says you can't take his life. Uh, and then now Job is has boils all over his skin. He's scraping his skin with broken pieces of pottery because of the itchiness, and he's pouring ash on it. Uh, he's just broken, and you'll even get to see some of the gross description of you know other stuff that's going on in his body because of these sores. And at the end of the chapter two, and all this is going on, he is just weeping. And the big line from Job is he tears his robe, shaves his head, and says, naked I came from the womb, and naked I return. And basically, he's pointing out that everything that he has is from God, and so it's God's to give. He says, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Uh, and it's God's to give, and if he doesn't have it anymore, he's not cursing God. He's just in grief. And he has four friends come and sit with him, and for seven days they say nothing. And that's really smart. And after one week, they get stupid. And that's all of chapters 3 through 31, which we hope to get through today. If we don't, uh, we'll have one more session uh, before we close up the book from chapters 32 to 42, uh, which is really Job's one wise friend and God's response to Job.
uh, but 3 through 31 is really Job's complaints, his friend's bad advice, or arguments with him. So we'll jump right into chapter 3. And remember, he's been silent for seven days as he's weeping with his friends there. And there's four guys there. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now that's important uh, because even after all of this and everything that's going on, when Job finally was able to speak through his grief, uh, he basically just says, I, I wish I was never born, but he never points the finger at God. He just thinks there's something wrong with him. Uh, Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. So he's not blaming God. He's actually saying, I, I hope that God doesn't even look at me because I'm, I'm just, I'm worthless at this point. Hope God doesn't, he averts his eyes from, from what I've apparently become to the earth. It says, may darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness on the day of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the months, number of months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come onto it. So you get the idea. Job is finally able to speak after all of this grief. And he basically is just saying, I wish I was never born. That day is a terrible day. I don't even want God to look back on that day because whatever this is, it's cursed. And so Eliphaz is the first of Job's friends to speak, and this is what you get from him. Up in chapter 4, he says, Eliphaz the, the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Now, he's basically saying, uh, if I speak to you, is it going to get worse? But I can't withhold what's on my mind. He says, surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have strengthened the feeble knees. So he's giving Job some compliments, basically saying you've, you've made the weak stronger You've given hope to people, but verse 5, things change. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who, who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Now these guys speak in very poetic language, and it sounds pretty if you're just reading it, but when you get to the heart of what they're saying, this is what Eliphaz is saying to him. He said, at one point in your righteousness, you were a person who brought strength to the weak, you brought hope to the hopeless, but now, now you've been cursed, sin must have touched you. And he even says, who, who being innocent or upright were ever cut off? He's basically blaming Job, saying, you've sinned. This, God is cursing you because of your sin. And this goes on. He goes further in chapter 5 as he's still berating Job. 
can pick up in verse 2. He says, For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I curse his dwelling place. Now, here's the thing about the book of Job. The book of Job is a prime example of why you don't just clip verses out of context. Because if you're clipping of one of these verses as uh, an ideal of what God's word instructs, well, it's recording things that Job's friends said to him, and they were incorrect about their judgments. And so if you're taking this as something to apply, well, this isn't really application. This is Job's friends being wrong. But it does point to sort of this idea, if someone is hurting or, or stumbling or their life has just gone off track, um, that sometimes there are these religious platitudes that get placed on people and say, oh, they must be, God must be punishing them. And this is what is being spoken of through these, these friends. They're placing religious platitudes that sound nice and poetic, but the truth is they're wrong. He even says some things that sound pretty right. Here's an example in verse 6. It says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. That's Eliphaz speaking as though he is now more righteous than Job, but it sounds compelling. And if you took that out of context, it sounds like a good verse, but it's really Eliphaz giving bad advice. Now Job responds to this advice, and he answers and says in chapter 6, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Now listen to what he's saying, because Job's response, he's saying that if you weighed the amount of grief that I'm experiencing right now, it would be heavier than all the sand of the seas. And that's his response to his friends who are just beating him up. And he's, he's saying, God is allowing this to happen to me. My spirit drinks in the poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. I'm saying, this is a man who's just, who fears God. And he is a righteous man. And he doesn't understand what's happening to him or why it's happening to him. And his friends aren't helping he says, does the, does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are loathsome food to me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off, then I would have comfort, though in anguish I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Now his response is, this is, it's so bad, I actually wish God would just let me die. This is how bad things gotten. Here's the, the really good thing about Job, and I think it's something that maybe we should practice a little bit more, is that Job doesn't blame God. He doesn't curse God. 
He understands that God is allowing this to happen, but he doesn't hate God because it's allow he's allowing it to happen. What Job hates, honestly, is himself at the moment because he doesn't understand what's going on. But in Job's responses, he's being honest. He's not putting on a happy face and pretending that things are better than they are. He's being honest with himself, with his friends, and with God. He's not trying to tell God that this doesn't suck, because it does. And I think you actually open yourself up for a response from God when you're really honest with him about when life stinks. If you don't open yourself up to a response, if you lie to yourself or if you're lying to God when you're talking to him, what is there to respond to? Be honest. Now, Job continues in, in chapter 7. He says, is there, not a hard, is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lay down, I say, when shall I arise, and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out. So you're seeing even these sores and boils and the relief he's trying to get from them are now filled with kind of creepy, crawly, gross bugs and worms and stuff. And he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. Now, that's interesting because in all of this, he's saying, this is horrible. Thing. I During the day, I can't wait until I can sleep so this day is over and I get up for the next one wishing it's over. And when it's not, I just want to go to sleep again. That's true of depression and grief. People who are suffering from depression often just want to sleep because they don't see a point in getting up in the day. But he also, in all of this, he comes to a little bit of a moment of clarity and remembers that his life is temporary. His life is just a vapor in the wind, just a breath. This book is very similar to Ecclesiastes in Solomon's uh, kind of look at wisdom of the world throughout all of his exploits. The difference is Job is cursed to a point of complete despair. And he is suffering from that, and in doing so, still remains faithful to God. Where Solomon comes at it from a completely different point of view, where Solomon failed God and becomes extremely wealthy, so much so that he completely fulfills himself with every, he doesn't withhold anything, any pleasure from him, any lust of the flesh he chases after to experience it to see if anything can fill the void. And his conclusion is no. Nothing but God can, can fill the void. And ultimately, the purpose is to follow God and his commands. And Job, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of life, comes to the same conclusion, but never gives up his faith. Which goes against the grain of what his friends have been saying. His friends have been saying that this thing that you're going through is because of your sin. So you're experiencing this curse, but Job was faithful through it all, where Solomon 
was extremely blessed throughout his life, even after he was unfaithful to God for such a long time. And so this question of why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people is part of the theme of Job. And we'll see now there's a new, a new friend speaking up and talking to Job. And Bildad speaks, Bildad the Shunite answered and uh, the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Now, that's a really poetic way of saying, you blow hard, how long are you just going to keep yapping your gums? Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he cast them away for their transgression. It would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty if you were pure and upright. Now, catch that. If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, your latter end would increase abundantly. For inquire, please, of the former and consider the things discovered by their fathers. Now, he's basically saying, listen to us in our age and wisdom, and we're telling you that you need to repent from your sin because... This is why everything's happening from you, happening to you, Job. It's your sin. God is just. He wouldn't let you go through this if you were righteous. And that's the basically the theme of what these guys are telling Job over and over again. And Job's response is absolutely brilliant in chapter 9. He says, Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Good question. Can't. If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. He's actually praising God's glory as he responds. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Now, Job's response is how beautiful and powerful and mighty God is. And he even says, how could I contend with him? I couldn't answer one question in a thousand. There's, God is so much more than I can really even comprehend. We pick up in verse 14. He says, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous... I could not answer him. He's saying, look, I haven't done anything wrong, but I don't have a way to get to him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. That's, that's a big deal. He's, he's calling out, saying, even though I'm righteous, I don't have a way to speak with God. And he even continues this towards the end of this answer. He says, for verse 32, for he is not a man as I am. That's very important. He says, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Verse 33, nor is there any mediator between us who lay his hands on us both. I hope you see the significance of what that is. I'm going to break it down. His response in his desire to plead his case before God is that God is not a man that he can ever connect with. And he wishes that there was some sort of mediator between him and God. But there's not. 
Well, Job is making a statement that comes to fruition in Jesus. When man, or God, puts on the flesh of man and becomes fully man and fully God in the man of Jesus, who becomes the mediator. And Paul writes, there is but one mediator between man and God, that is, Jesus Christ. He says, let him take his rod away from me and do not let the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear, but it is not so with me. If there was a mediator, it wouldn't be so terrifying. If there was a mediator, I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so. And as he continues his plea in chapter 10, he says, my soul loathes my life. I give I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counts of the wicked? Now, Job asks this question. What, why? Why are you doing this, God? Why? Me, a righteous man, why do you oppress me? But bless the wicked. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? So you know you'll have to make it to another session to get God's answer. As he continues his plea, his third friend responds. Zophar the Namathite answered and said, uh, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? What a horrible thing to say. Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be vindicated? You're just blowing wind, blowing smoke. Who do you think you are, Job, is what Zophar says. Should your empty talk take, uh, make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? And so now he's saying, all the things you're saying, now you've said so much, it's up to me now. You've put me in a position where I can't listen to you any longer. I have to tell you what I think now, Zophar says. For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom. What an accuser. Another one telling Job he needs to repent and basically saying, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. I am so sick of listening to you. Clearly, this is happening because of your sin. I can't even take it anymore. I have to tell you what's wrong. These guys who came here to comfort Job are now being accusers of Job. Legalism, this is what happens. Religious platitudes, this is what happens. But Job responds, chapter 12, he answers and says, uh, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Did you hear what Job said? He doesn't mock them. He actually says, no doubt wisdom is with you. Wisdom will die with you. But that doesn't discount the fact that I also contain wisdom. He said, I have understanding as well as you. And he points out to them who have put themselves on a pedestal over Job because they're not suffering at the moment as they're bullying him. And he says, I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? And he says, everything you're saying, I get it. I've heard, we've all heard the religious stuff before. 
But he says, I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him, just the just and blameless who is ridiculed. He's saying, I've called on God and God has God's answered me before. I'm no, I'm not better than you, but I'm not inferior to you. Why is it that my perspective of what's going on, it, as someone who trusts God and follows God, I would at least be aware of a sin I might have committed, potentially. And I'm telling you, I haven't. So stop just beating me up. I know just as much as you guys. He repeats this as he continues talking to them in, in chapter 13. He says, what you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent and it would be your wisdom. Now, this section to me is extremely interesting. He points out he's not inferior, but he desires really to be able to bring his case before God. But what he calls his friends, who are the religious people surrounding him, giving him advice, he calls them forgers of lies and worthless physicians, which sound a whole lot like some of the insults that Jesus gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But even after arguing with his friends and trying to get them to understand his perspective, in verse 15, you see the heart of Job still after all of this. Now, he's been through, he's lost all of his family, all of his livestock, all of his wealth. He's getting beat up by his friends. He's got boils on, on his skin with worms in them. And after being bullied by his friends and, and accused by all of the people around him, he says in verse 15, though he meaning of God, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him, but he shall also be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. And he understood the only way out is God. And even though he's allowed this to happen to me, I trust him, and he will be my salvation. He says in Chapter 14, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and doesn't continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. You hear what he's saying? He tr he, after his rant, about how even in his distress, he trusts God, and he knows that God is his salvation. And as he's arguing with these guys who are trying to tell him that he's sin, he says, do you open your eyes at someone like this, speaking of God? Do you bring judgment with yourself? And he says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one, meaning none of you. Only God can Now, Eliphaz chimes back in at the end of Job's rant, and he says, Should a wise man answer empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or speeches with which he, do, he can do no good? Yet you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth. And you choose the tongue of the crafty, 
Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. So now what he's saying is not only did your sin cause this problem, now you're sinning more with all of your talk, and you're going to bring more calamity upon yourself. That's what Eliphaz is telling him. Now Job responds to all of them. In chapter 16, he says, Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And now he really challenges them. Now I've heard all this stuff. You've said it all before. Miserable comforters are you. Shall words of wind have an end? He basically calls them the same thing he's been calling them. You just blow in smoke. Or what provokes you that you answer? I also speak as you do. I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap words against you and shake my head at you. He's saying, I could do the same thing. If you, were, if you were suffering, I could do exactly the same thing to you. I could tell you that you're in the wrong, that God's punishing you. I could do exactly that to you. But, verse 5, I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would be your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent, how am I eased? Right? Now he says, if I were in your position, I would comfort you. I would bring encouragement. That would be of more help. And then he also says, if I, you're accusing me of my speech causing me to sin more. But if I don't speak, how does that help me? If I don't let this out, if I don't vent, if I don't tell the truth, how does that help me? That's just good therapy advice. Just tell the truth. Open up. Let it out. Tell God the truth. Open up those wounds so he can heal them. He says, but now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. So Job's response is really, you guys are terrible. I, I don't know what, you came here initially to comfort me, and now all you're doing is accusing me. If I were in your shoes, I would want to encourage you. I want to help you move forward, not point the finger at you. Now, Job prays for relief in chapter 17. It says, My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me, are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now, put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. But he has made a byword of the people, and I have become one whose face, uh, in whose face men spit. He's talking about ultimate suffering. You know, he's making an allegory in that basically what's happening to him is they're spitting in his face. Now, they're not actually spitting in his face, but considering the suffering servant position that Job is in, that he makes a point to say that they spit in his face is odd. As he's the one who asks for the ultimate mediator to come between man and God, as he wishes God could be a man that he could speak to with understanding of what he's going through, Jesus experiences the ultimate suffering and people actually spit in his face at his trials. So again, the thread always points back to the Redeemer. Now Bildad isn't done either. He still has more to say to Job. He says, how long till you put an end to words, gain understanding afterward, and we will speak. 
Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who will tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light in the dark in his tent and the lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened and his own ca uh, counsel casts him down. Now you actually see what it looks like from, from Bildad is now he's offended that Job is upset with them. <laughs> and his response is, you think, you think we're stupid? You tear yourself in anger? Shall the earth be forsaken before you? And uh, that's his response. What are, you, what are you doing being angry with us? We're, we're trying to fix you. How dare you check us? That's pride in his heart. But Job says, in, verse, in chapter 19, Job answers and says, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. And he basically says, Why are you tormenting me? Why are you just picking on me? Um, and if I have done something wrong... What is that to you? Like, that's between me and God. It lies within me. Why do you feel the need to fix me? And he goes on to say, which is just beautiful prose and really points to the future. In verse 23, oh, that my words were written. Well, turns out that happens. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Why? Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So even after all this, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I hope that this is written down because people need to know that my Redeemer lives. And I, my heart yearns for the moment that I stand before him and I see him. Now you think that would shut people up, but Zophar's got stuff to say. He says, do you know that this old, this is verse 4, do you know that this of, uh, did you not know that this of old since man was placed on the earth that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but a moment. Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. So he kind of calls him a pile of something uh, there. And he is trying to call Job prideful as Job is proclaiming the deep desire to see God, his Redeemer. This is the difference between a heart for religion and a heart for God. Now Job, he responds, he says, listen carefully to my speech. So he asks them to pay attention. He says, my, my, my complaint is against man, verse 4. And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified and trembling takes a hold of the flesh. And now he is, his response is my complaint is not against God. My complaint is against you, is against man. And it should be, and I should be impatient. But when I think of God, I'm terrified. Because he has a healthy fear of God. Now, Eliphaz can't take it. And in verse 4 of chapter 22, he says, Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you? 
and enters into judgment with you. And now he's looking at Job's fear of God as a negative. And he condemns him for his fear of God. But Solomon tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, Job responds in chapter 23. He says, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. And his goal is still just to be before God. I have not departed, this is verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And he considers God's words, considers God to be of more importance to him than food. Towards the end of this, he's in, in verse 15, he says, Therefore I am terrified at his presence when I consider this. I am afraid of him. For God has made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me. Before I was cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide darkness from my face. Uh, he goes on for quite a while. Bildad responds to him again, and basically again accuses him in verse 4 of chapter 25. You know, how can a man be righteous before God? How can he be pure who is born of woman? Telling Job, clearly you've sinned. Job can't handle it. You know, he, he picks up and, and he responds in, in chapter 26. We'll pick up in verse 12. And this is his, his view of things. He says, speaking of God, he stirs up the sea with his power. And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. His spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And it is interesting to me that, again, his imagery about God's power after being the one who desires to be able to talk to God like he could talk to another man and to have a mediator is one where he talks about him stirring up the sea and calming it. And then his hand being pierced and fleeing, the serpent fleeing. I mean, that is just poetic beauty that points to Jesus. And Job continues in chapter 27 and chapter 28, and he just continues on with his desire. And he starts summing up his defense of why he's not guilty in chapter 29. He says, Job further continued his discord and said, Oh, that I were in, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me. And he's even saying, oh, How I yearn for the days, for the comfort that God had given me. And we see Job continues to speak for quite a while. And we'll pick up in chapter 31 where he says, I, I want to end on, on chapter 31 and, and the things that Job says, because as Job is making a defense for who he is, this is useful context. Um, look at some of the things Job has decided to do to be faithful to God. In chapter 31, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman for what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty on high? So Job is even, even then saying, I refuse to even lust with my eyes. That's how committed I am to being faithful to God. In verse 6, he says, Let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity if my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, let my harvest be rooted out. Now the, the end of his, of his recourse, 
He says in verse 36, Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and my furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. And so he offers himself a defense. And, as, and then he says, if I'm wrong, if I'm really, if I'm wrong and I've erred, he, he talks about land growing thistles and, um, you know, eating its fruit without money. And it sounds a lot to me like the parable of the sower and the seed, you know, does, does the seed that Job has cast, is it healthy soil? Did it land in healthy soil? Is he a righteous man? Or did somewhere along the way he get choked by thorns and thistles? And now he's willing to listen. So what you see in this whole setup is this is an argument between Job and his friends and Job's plea to God. There's a lot of things we can learn through this. I think maybe the most important application is in Scripture, context matters because his friends are speaking and giving him bad advice. And so if you took one of those verses out of context and put it on, say, your Facebook page, <laughs> uh, it looks silly because it's clearly the context is not this is God's advice. The more important part of it is in this suffering that Job is experiencing, his deep desire is to, he yearns for God and trusts in God and knows that God is his salvation and knows that God is his redeemer. And the one thing he asks for is a mediator. And we are lucky because unlike Job, we have one because God did put on flesh, become a man so that we could talk to him like he's one of us, a man who has experienced suffering that none of us can contend with, Jesus. But because of the resurrection, we now have a mediator between man and God. And Jesus, we can, because of Jesus, we can actually have direct access to God that Job wished and desired. Now in the next session, which will be the last session of Job, going through the last 10 chapters, 32 through 42. And we'll actually get to see some wisdom from one of Job's friends and then also God's response and the conclusion of the book. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that even this far back, Job was aware that his Redeemer lives. Thank you for what that means on this side of the resurrection. We know that our Redeemer lives and our Redeemer paid the debt of our sin and allows us direct access to you that Job wished he had. Pray that we don't take that lightly and that we also offer that opportunity to others who need it. In Jesus' name, amen.